Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a trip back in time, soaking in the primordial soup to discover the origins of DNA, find out where genes come from and how some species have stolen theirs from viruses, and explore what's next for the genetic code. Before we start, a quick reminder about my latest book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, which is now out in paperback in the UK, along with the hardback, Kindle and audiobook versions and a US edition. Excitingly, I can officially call it a number one bestseller, as it topped the medical genetics charts on Amazon last week. And it was also picked as one of the top paperbacks by The Times, alongside living legend Stephen Fry. High praise indeed. To grab your copy and find out what all the fuss is about, just head to your favourite real-life or online retailer, or go to rebelcellbook.com to buy a signed copy or bookplate sticker. Thank you. Now, on with the show. Let's get going by hopping into a time machine and setting the clock back roughly 3.7 to 4.4 billion years. We've uh, ended up somewhere around the time that scientists think that life first started on Earth. The planet looks very different to the one we know today. Of course, with no life, there are no trees, plants or animals. There's also no oxygen or ozone layer, leaving the planet's surface exposed to the sun's intense UV rays and uh, making it blisteringly hot. Despite the high temperatures, there are vast oceans covering most of the surface of the Earth. Frequent volcanic eruptions spew gases into the atmosphere, including carbon dioxide, nitrogen, hydrogen and water vapour. Not a great place to be, by any standards. Yet, somehow, life emerged from this chaos. And from there unfolded all the incredible biodiversity that we see today. Experts think that the first step towards life was simply a molecule that was capable of self-replicating. As a geneticist, your mind might jump straight away to the most famous self-replicating molecule of them all, DNA. However, there has been plenty of debate about exactly which biological molecule filled this role, with many pointing to RNA as the prime candidate for the first replicator thanks to its versatility that allows it to self-replicate and store information. This is the basis of the so-called RNA world hypothesis. RNA is a single-stranded biological polymer made up of building blocks called nucleotides. Nucleotides consist of a ribose sugar molecule attached to a phosphate group and a nitrogen-containing base. The bases in RNA are adenine, cytosine, guanine and uracil, usually known by their initials A, C, G and U, strung together along a phosphate sugar backbone. And it's the order of these nucleotides, or letters, that spell out the genetic code. Scientists think that individual nucleotides may have formed spontaneously in the chaotic soup that was simmering on the primordial Earth 
and eventually these nucleotides bonded together to form RNA. Unstable RNAs quickly broke down, but stable molecules grew, and finally self-copying RNA formed. Some RNAs were better at copying themselves than others, so they persisted and became more abundant. Natural selection at its most fundamental. To support this theory, in the 1950s, American chemists Stanley Miller and Harold Urey from the University of Chicago devised experiments to try to prove that organic building blocks necessary for life could form spontaneously under the conditions seen on the early Earth. They built a closed system containing gases thought to be present back in the day. Ammonia, nitrogen, hydrogen and a heated pool of water. Next, they sent sparks of electricity through the system to represent lightning flashes that might have provided energy to kickstart chemical reactions on the primordial planet. Then they let the system stew. And after around a week, they found organic molecules, including sugars, amino acids and fats. Although they didn't find any large complex molecules like DNA or RNA, their experiments showed that organic building blocks could have formed spontaneously on early Earth, laying the foundation for more complex molecules later on. Experts now think that Miller and Urey's experiments didn't get the atmosphere of early Earth quite right. But more recent experiments have shown that organic building blocks, including nucleotides, can form under a relatively wide range of conditions that could have been present on the primordial Earth. So, it seems reasonable to expect that the building blocks of life formed spontaneously, but the details on how they came together to form more complex molecules remain sketchy. While the theory about the origins of single-stranded RNA seems relatively straightforward, nucleotides formed, they somehow glue themselves together and made copies of themselves, most of life on Earth uses double-stranded DNA, not RNA, as its genetic code. DNA, like RNA, is made up of chains of nucleotides. However, the nucleotides in DNA contain a different sugar, deoxyribose, which is harder to make than the ribose sugar in RNA. What's more, in DNA, uracil is replaced with the base thiamine, or T, which has a slightly different structure. Hence, the DNA genetic code is spelled out in the letters A, C, G and T. Exactly how DNA came into existence is still a mystery. Conventional wisdom suggests that RNA-based life eventually switched to DNA to take advantage of its stability, which makes it better at storing genetic information. But so far, there's little evidence about how this could have happened. There are viruses whose genomes contain DNA with uracil instead of thiamine, a substance called uracil DNA. The existence of this halfway house might give us a glimpse into the evolution of DNA from RNA, but many questions remain about the switch, including how early life forms could have translated RNA into DNA, a process that relies on enzymes that scientists think required millions more years of evolution. Mysteries like these mean that in recent years, increasing numbers of experts have renounced the RNA world hypothesis, and with it, the idea that DNA evolved from RNA. 
Instead, some have put forward the theory that RNA and DNA formed at around the same time. Recent experiments at Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, Germany, have shown that the subunits of DNA could have formed spontaneously and been present in the primordial soup, suggesting that the first DNA molecules could have formed at a similar time to RNA. Others suggest that the idea that pure RNA or pure DNA formed spontaneously is unlikely. This is because single strands of RNA or DNA match up with complementary nucleotide building blocks as a first step to copying themselves. But the paired RNA or DNA strands then bind together so tightly that they can't separate without help from sophisticated enzymes, preventing them from making any new RNA or DNA. New models from the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge indicate that the evolution of DNA and RNA might have been messier than first thought, with RNA-DNA hybrid molecules forming less stable double-stranded complexes before sorting themselves out and transitioning to pure RNA and DNA. As if all these confusing theories aren't enough, Some experts reject the idea that any nucleic acid formed before proteins, instead favouring a metabolism-first hypothesis, with amino acids appearing spontaneously in the primordial soup and eventually forming peptides, self-replicating proteins and ultimately self-sustaining metabolic networks, with nucleic acids turning up later. One of my favourite theories put forward by Professor Nick Lane from UCL is that life got started thanks to charged proton particles shuttling around between the layers of water gushing out from deep-sea hydrothermal vents. Effectively, life got started from pond slime. There are, of course, many more theories about the chemical origins of life, including alternative nucleic acids and even genetic material or life itself arriving on Earth from outer space. Although this would render all this speculation about chemical conditions on early Earth completely irrelevant, it merely shifts the problem to a different place in the universe. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. And despite all this speculation about how nucleic acids, amino acids and even proteins might have spontaneously appeared and begun self-replicating, these theories still don't explain one of the most important aspects of life as we know it – the genetic code. The genetic code, which enables information stored in DNA and RNA to be translated into proteins that allow organisms to function, is near enough uniform in every living organism with the same three-letter words, or codons, translating to the same amino acids in almost every known organism, with only rare and very weird exceptions. The highly conserved nature of the genetic code throughout life on Earth suggests that it must have evolved before the theoretical last universal common ancestor, or LUCA, from which all life supposedly descended, appeared around 3.5 to 3.8 billion years ago allowing it to be passed on and preserved through the entire tree of life. It's generally accepted that the modern genetic code evolved from a simpler version with fewer amino acids, with some suggesting that the first code only used two amino acids, which then expanded to become the full repertoire we know and love today. But there is no scientific consensus about how the initial code evolved. 
what it was like, or how it functioned. So, for now, we mostly just have speculation. Back to the time machine. It's time to whiz forward a few billion years to tackle another mystery in the history of life. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? This is a podcast called Genetics Unzipped, so unsurprisingly, we spend a lot of time talking about genes. These are stretches of DNA or RNA that encode the instructions that tell cells to make specific proteins. Uh, Just to be pedantic, there are also genes that make functional non-coding RNAs, which don't encode a protein, but instead have their own job to do in cells. As far as we can tell, All of life on Earth evolved from one common ancestor, Luca, which must have had one set of genes, whatever they look like. But that leaves the question of how this simple set of genes diversified to encompass the incredible diversity of genes that now exist in trillions of extant and extinct species on Earth. In other words, where do genes come from? Some new genes form when nature tinkers with existing ones by accidentally changing, duplicating, blending or breaking them up. Small changes in some powerful genes can make them a major source of evolutionary change. For example, changes in Hox genes that help lay out complex organisms' body shapes, telling your body, make a head here, make feet here, can have enormous consequences for the resulting organism. Hox genes are often arranged in clusters, thought to have formed when a single original Hox gene was duplicated. For example, humans have 39 Hox genes in four clusters. That's a lot of accidental copying and pasting. We talked about this more back in episode 3 of our previous series, Fish, Facts and Fiction. Other genes have even weirder origins – with the latest science showing that some of our genes come from our mortal enemies, viruses. Throughout evolution, our ancestors have been locked in a war against invading viruses. These tiny molecular machines consist of little more than a string of genetic material in a protein coat invading our cells and hijacking their machinery to create millions of copies of themselves, sometimes at the expense of our lives. Some viruses, such as HIV, are retroviruses, meaning that they can insert themselves into our DNA, where they get copied and pasted into multiple parts of the genome. During the course of evolution, these inserted viral genes can jump around, mutate and change, eventually becoming embedded in their host's genome. As a result, scientists think that around half of our genome contains DNA sequences that may have been abandoned by ancient viruses, 
adding up to a whole lot of genetic junk. But sometimes, as it turns out, organisms have harnessed these viral invaders and put them to work for their advantage. For example, syncytin genes, which make proteins that help form the placenta during pregnancy and stops the mother's immune system from attacking her baby in the womb, look suspiciously like genes from a retrovirus, which are often masters at evading attack from the immune system. Curiously, the syncytin gene is only found in humans and large primates, suggesting that somewhere in our evolutionary timeline, before humans and primates split, we stole these viral genes and turned them to our own ends. Interestingly, some mammals, including mice, cats and dogs, have syncytin genes that do the same jobs, but look like different viruses, suggesting that other branches of the evolutionary tree employed the same tactic, but with different viruses. Other stolen viral genes help us defeat viruses themselves. For example, a gene in the human genome that switches on immune defence mechanisms when it detects a viral infection, forcing infected cells to self-destruct, has been traced back to a retrovirus from 45 to 60 million years ago. The viruses trapped in our genomes have brought us enormous benefits, but unfortunately, it isn't all good news. The ability of viral genes to jump around in our genome can deactivate essential genes and cause disease. Experts suggest that a new jump occurs in around 1 in 20 babies, which can be harmless or, just as easily, disease-causing or even deadly, depending on the genetic changes resulting from the jump. Jumping genes have also been linked to the genetic chaos inside cancer cells and other conditions like schizophrenia, epilepsy and intellectual disabilities. What's more, it turns out that stealing genes is a two-way street, with recent analyses showing that pathogens like influenza can snatch genetic sequences from their hosts and use them for their own sneaky devices. Unfortunately, it seems to be hard to keep our genes to ourselves. It's time to jump back in our time machine and go right up to the present day and maybe into the future. For a long time, scientists thought that the genetic code was completely universal, with the same three-letter DNA or RNA words encoding the same amino acid building blocks of proteins. But recent research has shown that there are rare deviations from this rule, known as non-canonical codes. In one example reported in 2006, scientists at the University of Vigo used a computational method to search for deviations from the genetic code and found that arthropods use the code AGG for the amino acid lysine instead of serine, unlike the rest of life on Earth. Small deviations like this bring yet more questions, like whether the genetic code is still evolving, with a new, improved code poised to emerge. Perhaps too impatient to wait millions or billions of years for evolution, 
and who can blame them? Some scientists have even begun to explore if we can improve upon nature's solution and create alternative genetic codes. The emerging field of xenobiology is a subfield of synthetic biology that involves using chemical substances not normally found in nature, for example, alternative DNA, known as XNA, short for xenonucleic acid. Some experts in the field are creating XNA with completely new nucleotide bases beyond the standard A, C, T and G. In other words, they're adding new letters to the genetic alphabet. You might wonder why you would want a genetic code with more letters. But an expanded code brings expanded possibilities for life and us. New genetic letters can encode more different amino acids. With more amino acids comes potentially new and exciting biological molecules and functions, which could be game changers in the search for new drugs, particularly biopharmaceuticals, which are currently limited by the chemical properties of naturally occurring biological molecules. But making new genetic letters is not easy, because even small changes to the chemical structures of the naturally occurring nucleotides can throw off the double helical structure of DNA. Initially, scientists added two additional letters to DNA, but the latest iteration of XNA uses four synthetic nucleotides, B, P, S and Z, in addition to the big four of A, C, G and T. It's called Hachimoji DNA, after the Japanese word meaning eight letters. Researchers have even been able to adapt an enzyme to transcribe the Hachimoji DNA into Hachimoji RNA, suggesting that this novel system will be capable of sustaining life and could be used to produce novel proteins with new amino acids. However, they haven't created a functioning Hachimoji gene just yet. Before you start picturing new synthetic life forms escaping from laboratories, life based on Hachimoji DNA requires a ready supply of special B, P, S and Z nucleotides that are currently only found in the pages of chemical company catalogues rather than out in the world at large. So if they do escape, they will quickly die. Whew. Although currently not much more than a laboratory curiosity, Hachimoji DNA demonstrates that nature's nucleotides are not unique in their ability to store genetic information. In turn, this raises questions about whether DNA-based life on other planets might use a different genetic code entirely, or whether a new and improved genetic code might evolve right here on Earth in the next few billion years. Watch this space. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a journey to the middle of the South Pacific Ocean to meet the Robinson Crusoe Islanders and discover what we can learn about language from studying their genes. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I promise it does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Emily Norvang. 
It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by the very wonderful Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.